The words that I'd like to direct your attention to are found in the book Numbers chapter 12. We'll be looking after Numbers 12. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, Has Yahweh indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? Yahweh heard it. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. And suddenly Yahweh said to Moses and to Aaron and Miriam, Come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. And the three of them came out. And Yahweh came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forward. And he said, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, Yahweh, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly, and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of Yahweh. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of Yahweh was kindled against them. And he departed. When the cloud was removed from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous like snow. And Aaron turned toward Miriam, and behold, she was leprous. And Aaron said to Moses, O my Lord, do not punish us because we have done foolishly and have sinned. Let her not be as one dead, whose flesh is half eaten when he comes out of his mother's womb. And Moses cried to Yahweh, O God, please heal her, please. But Yahweh said to Moses, If her father had but spit in her face, should she not be shamed seven days? Let her be shut outside the camp seven days, and after that she may be brought in again. So Miriam was shut outside the camp seven days, and the people did not set out on the march till Miriam was brought in again. After that, the people set out from Hazaroth and camped in the wilderness of Paran. Father, we do again ask for your assistance as we look at your word that we would rightly understand it and understand how we should apply it. Father, we want to honor you and we realize that we don't even see all the different ways that we dishonor you. And I pray that you would renew our minds through your word and that you'd strengthen us to endure, or that we'd be faithful in all that you've called us to. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. How should a Christian respond to authorities who he or she disagrees with? In America, it's culturally acceptable to slander authorities, to... Um, disregard them, mock them, even threaten an authority we disagree with. It's not only 
um, uh, acceptable, it's even commendable in our culture. Many Christians, therefore, have little qualms with grumbling against uh, presidents or police officers or their parents or even pastors. And we in America, I think, are extremely desensitized to this sin of speaking against authorities. And we, we know that God expects us to, um, to honor those who are in authority over us, whether they're believers or not. Uh, slaves, as we saw in First Timothy, are commanded to honor their masters. Children are called to honor their parents, as you know, in Exodus 20.12. Citizens are commanded to honor their emperor in 1 Peter 2.17. And at the time when P- Peter wrote that, Nero was emperor. And he was a wicked man. I mean, he makes uh, Joe Biden and uh, Justin Trudeau look like Big Bird and Elmo. He was awful. And yet God says, you need to honor the emperor. Similarly, Peter exhorts, let every person be subject. Sorry, it's Paul. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Romans 13.1. So the point there is when we fail to honor our authorities, we're also failing to honor the God who placed those authorities over us. So speaking against God's appointed authority is to speak against God. And that's precisely the issue that's addressed in Numbers chapter 12 when Miriam and Aaron speak against Moses, God's spokesman. Although Moses was their brother, they had no license to speak against him because he served as God's spokesman. The chapter can be broken down into... Sorry, Dan. Yeah, thank you. Into three simple points where Aaron, Moses and Aaron speak against Moses and then there's God's response to Miriam and Aaron and then discipline is meted out by God in 10 through 16. And then the, you could actually have even a simpler outline. We have the sin, and then there's God's response, and then the consequence. Let's look at the first point. Moses and Aaron speak, sorry, Miriam and Aaron speak against Moses. This chapter obviously follows on the heels of the previous chapter, chapter 11, where uh, God uh, condemned the Israelites for complaining about their food in particular. And then you'll remember in that complaining against manna, there was this brief explanation after they issue their complaint where it says now and then it explains what manna was. There's just a brief parenthesis. And you have the same thing here as well, where there's this brief uh, description of Moses being meek, one of the the meekest man in the face of the earth. And so it follows that. Like with the manna, they had no reason to complain about the manna. Likewise, they have no reason to speak against Moses. That's the pattern that's developed. You also recall that in chapter 11, um, the text says that the narrates the Lord's response to their grumbling, having heard it. The same thing is here. The Lord heard Miriam and Aaron's speaking against Moses. 
And just as he was angered when he heard the complaints of the people and judged them, likewise, when he hears Aaron and Miriam's complaints, he judges Miriam. So just as he's angered with their complaints, he's also angry when people speak against Moses. The the word speak, you'll notice, is used six times in the chapter. And its, its repetition demonstrates that this is the central sin. This is the concern. It's also seen in the indictment that actually Lord, the Lord poses when he talks to Aaron and Miriam and asks them the question, why then were you not afraid to speak against Moses? That's what they did wrong. That's the sin. The text indicates that the reason for speaking against Moses was actually something apparently trivial. He had married a Cushite. That, of course, brings up this question. Well, who is this Cushite? We know, of course, that Mayor Aaron, uh, sorry, Moses was married to Zipporah. And Zipporah, in other portions of Scripture, Exodus 2.21, 4.5, Exodus 18.2, she's described as a Midianite. And the word Cush refers to, uh, it's the ancient word for Ethiopia or Sudan. So it's possible that uh, describing um, Zipporah as a Cushite is referring to her skin color and Midianite is her nationality. Or it's also possible this is just referring to another woman. We don't know. The text doesn't say. But that's what they were upset about, or at least Miriam. Because you'll note that there's a, a slight change in the verb to speak against in verse 1 and verse 2. In verse 1, the verb speak against is in the feminine singular. And that indicates that Miriam was the primary speaker in this compound verb. Or sorry, the first compound subject, Miriam and Aaron. It indicates that Miriam was primary in speaking against. And this is likely why she was the one struck with leprosy. But then you'll notice in verse 2, the verb to speak against is plural. When it says, and they said... This indicates that it's primarily Miriam who criticized the marriage, but it was both Miriam and Aaron who spoke against Moses. So they both spoke against Moses, but Miriam maybe began it with her criticism of his wife. Specifically to ask, has Yahweh indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? Now, on the surface, that seems like a valid question because it's true. They had spoken. God had spoken through them. We saw in chapter 11, there were also 70 other prophets that spoke. Miriam in the Red Sea crossing at Exodus 15 is described as a prophetess. So at least once she prophesied. And of course, Aaron was appointed because of Moses' weakness to be his spokesman. Because Moses didn't think he would qualify to speak to Pharaoh. So God... Uh, spoke through Aaron as well as Moses. And so the question they ask is, on the surface, valid. But why are they asking the question? The point behind the question suggests that Moses is abusing his authority as God's spokesman. They're undermining his authority by this question. So just because they prophesied once or even a few times doesn't suggest that they have equal authority with Moses, which is what they are suggesting. 
to illustrate, um, consider how sometimes, I don't know if this happened in your school, but sometimes schools will have uh, a kid be the principal for the day. So imagine a, a child gets to be principal for the day, but because they had that one opportunity, they therefore think that they have the prerogative to now take control over the school permanently and serve as that principal. That's similar to what's happening here. The assumption behind the attack is that Moses is abusing his authority as God's spokesman. But the accusation doesn't fit. Thus the qualification where it says the man Moses was very meek. More than all the people who are on the face of the earth. Like if you're going to level this accusation against anybody, you wouldn't level it against Moses. It doesn't fit. And this is also demonstrated by the fact that Moses doesn't defend himself. He doesn't say a single thing in his defense. And he didn't need to. Because God would take up his defense. And this is the same humble leadership that was demonstrated, of course, by Christ. As said in 1 Peter 2, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Moses understood his job wasn't to defend himself or to make himself great in the eyes of the Israelites. He had a very simple job, and that was to simply speak God's word to his people. And if they wanted to undermine him, their sister and brother or some other uh, upstart, God would deal with it. His job was to speak God's word. And God defends him, as we see in verses 4 through 9. In verse 4, you'll see God responds immediately to this attack. And he directly speaks to the three of them. Immediately. And he calls them then to the tent of meeting. Which, you know, prompts this question. Why didn't he just speak to them then and there? Why does he call them to the tent of meeting? Well, there's two reasons. One, he's calling them to his royal court. This is where his throne was. Right? The Ark of the Covenant was described as a throne of God. So by being called to the tabernacle, they're being called before his seat of judgment. So uh, this is the, the difference in, in speaking to them directly and, and speaking to them from the tabernacle. is like uh, when I was a kid, the principal would catch me running in the halls and he'd call out at me, Joseph, stop running. I'd stop. The difference, so there's a difference that between when he says, Joseph, into my office now. Yes, and both happen. Um, but there's a difference. To just be warned is one thing. But he's saying, come to the throne of judgment. This is serious. This is no light thing that, Mo- that Aaron and Miriam have done with Moses. The second reason he's calling them here is because this is the normal place of speaking and providing revelation. Recall that most of the prophets in the previous chapter spoke at the tabernacle. It was only Eldad and Medad who didn't. And most of the time, this is where the, the revelation was received. It's, it's, the exception, it's the exception when revelation is received elsewhere. So again, by calling them to the tabernacle, God is visually declaring to them, this is where I particularly speak through my spokesman. 
And this is made clear in his indictment that he levels at them in verses six through eight. And the, the first point in this indictment is to, clarity, to clarify that nobody has the prerogative to declare themselves to be God's spokesman. He appoints them. Right? Notice in verse 6. Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, Yahweh, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. So that emphasis of I shows that who's who is the one that decides who's in charge? Who prophesies? It's me. Don't you forget that, Aaron, Miriam. Even if somebody is blessed with the ability to prophesy, it's because God gave them that ability. It's not self-imposed. Like Paul told the Corinthians, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did, then received it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? The other point he makes is that there's a difference between the revelation that prophets receive and the revelation that Moses receives. And this is what he emphasized. See, with most prophets, revelation came in a dream. Or it was vague and needed interpretation. So just think about um, the prophecies of Joseph, the dreams of Joseph and Pharaoh. They didn't necessarily even know exactly what those dreams communicated. Joseph needed to interpret his dream to Pharaoh. Well, this is not the case with Moses. Verse 7, not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly not in riddles, and he beholds the form of Yahweh. But the point of that, of saying this, is that when Moses speaks, it has far more weight far more clarity than when just any other prophet speaks. Notice also the way he describes Moses here. First, he calls him his servant. The servant to be called God's servant or the servant of the Lord in the Bible was a title. And it was a title that was reserved for, we would say, the greatest of God's servants. It's how Moses is described. It's how David is described. Hezekiah and of course, the Messiah, the servant of the Lord. The title also demonstrates that Moses, in his role as a prophet, was not serving himself, but God. He wasn't there to gain more popularity, to gain more esteem, more honor. He was just serving God. And so, to some extent, again, when they speak against Moses... They are speaking against God. An attack on the king's ambassador is an attack on the king himself. That's what God wants them to see as they speak against his servant. Notice also that they describe Moses as, sorry, he describes Moses as faithful in all my house. That word faithful is aman. It describes something that's firm, that's reliable, that's trustworthy. Something to be counted on. So by describing Moses as faithful, he's, he's just saying <clears throat> he's not corrupt. He's not abusing his authority. He's leading according to my expectation. And I was struck um, by that description. He's faithful in all my house. And when I was studying this, I thought that is a unique description. What does it mean? And so I looked it up in where that phrase is used. And I didn't find it anywhere else except... 
Hebrews 3, which is quoting Numbers 12. And it turns out that that's what the, the Sunday school students were looking at today, too, is Hebrews 3. You could turn in your Bibles there. But it's noteworthy that the author chose to quote Numbers 12.7 of all texts to describe Moses. Now, in Hebrews 3, the whole point of Hebrews 3 is to show how Jesus Christ is greater than everything else. He's greater even than Moses. And so to demonstrate how great Moses is, the author quotes Numbers 12.7. Now, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant. How was he a servant? To testify to the things that were to be spoken later. Hebrews 3.5. See, Moses was faithful particularly because he spoke God's revelation faithfully. Which is, in fact, again, what Miriam and Aaron are calling into question with their sly question. Has not God spoken through us also? They're calling into question his faithfulness. But that's exactly what defines Moses is his faithfulness in speaking the word of God. So God wraps up his indictment by asking, why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? I mean, given all the list of reasons why they shouldn't have, that he received direct personal revelation, that he was appointed by God to serve as a servant, and the fact that he was faithful in all of my house, as God says, given all of those reasons, why would you think it was wise to speak against my servant? Well, the question's rhetorical. They know. See, God's pointing out that it wasn't Moses that was acting in presumptuous pride. But it was them. They're the ones with the, the caber sticking out of their eye. Trying to find some speck of dust in Moses's. God gives Aaron and Miriam a whole series of reasons to expose their folly and pride in speaking against him. Now, we should be slow to speak against anybody. As it says in James 4, James 4.11, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother, notice that phrase, the one who speaks against a brother, or judges his brother, speaks evil against the law and judges the law. So we're not, we shouldn't be speaking against anybody, particularly Christians. But this is especially true of those whom God has appointed as authorities over us. And even more so, those who are appointed as authorities and given the responsibility to teach the word of God to us. This is why Paul exhorts the Thessalonians, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and who over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. First Thess 5, 12-13. See, again, the gravity of Aaron and Moses' sin, Miriam's sin, I keep saying Moses, sorry. The, the gravity of Aaron and Miriam's sin is they are actually undermining God. Okay, immediate question of application. Well, nobody today receives revelation like Moses does. Right? Where they, no preacher in, the, in his study time beholds the form of God. 
nor does he speak with God face to face. So how does that apply today? Well, today, as you know, a preacher of God's word serves as God's spokesman to the church. So it brings up this question. Well, does that mean a Christian can never call into question anything that he hears a preacher say? I mean, do do preachers just have automatic diplomatic immunity, so to speak? Let me be very clear. No, (laughs) they should call into question anything that doesn't seem to line up with God's word. Right. Again, unlike Moses, New Testament preachers, they're not receiving God's revelation directly from God himself. They, they receive it in his word. Their job is simply to proclaim what God's word says. And anybody hearing God's word should be able to see for themselves. Is that a faithful interpretation or not? Now, there are some texts that are difficult, but you should be able to discern pretty easily. Is this just a stretch? Is this person using the word of God to direct his own convictions or is he just simply trying to explain what the text itself says right to the degree that what they say is a right interpretation and an appropriate application of the word of god to that degree they speak for god but if they're not interpreting it rightly well what they're saying has no weight There's a difference, we need to recognize there's a difference between positional authority and and spiritual authority when it comes to uh, leaders in the church. Now, by position, they have authority. They need to make decisions. They need to lead. And we should respect anybody with a position of authority and honor them. But a pastor's spiritual authority or credibility is limited to how they handle the Word of God. Say it again, a pastor's spiritual authority or credibility is dependent on how they handle the word of God. That's why Paul tells Timothy, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. A worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. So what should a Christian do then if they hear something in a sermon or in a Bible study that sounds errant? Well, first, I think they need to make sure that what was said was an error, because often we're the ones in error. And so the reason there seems to be a conflict is because the truth is butting up against something that we have misunderstood. Right. All of us battle with sin and error. And so it's, it's only through engagement in the word and right understanding of the word of God that those errors in our thinking are corrected. So it's possible, first of all, that. What sounds like error is actually the truth and what we believe is actually with error. And so we need to make sure that we're not the ones in error. We don't want to be hypocrites like Miriam and Aaron. Secondly, though, we should also recognize that some errors are minor and just need to be overlooked. Like saying Moses and Aaron spoke against Moses. <laughs> no, it's like it's easy. Time, you hear me all the time misspeak. But usually you can tell what I intend. And so like anything, those aren't things to be brought up. It's just, you know, we overlook just like we overlook all of our mistakes that are minor. We understand what the intent is. So such errors don't need to be addressed. But if a pastor's teaching is 
actually undermining what God's word says. Either what it says in a particular passage or what it says in the whole of scripture. Then it probably should be addressed. Just consider how Priscilla and Aquila approached Apollos. Who is a, a good preacher. But they pulled him aside humbly and respectfully explain the word of God more accurately to them, to him. And then after that, Apollos was even more powerful than he'd been before. They blessed him by lovingly correcting him. Peter also needed to be corrected by Paul when his life, when his behavior was not in line with the gospel as he chose not to eat with the Gentiles when the Judaizers showed up in their church. He was corrected by Paul in Galatians 2. So if you think a pastor is teaching significant error, I think what you should do is you should speak to him. Uh, if you, you hear something I say, I say, you can talk to me after church. Phone calls are great. I don't recommend emails just because there's so much can be lost in, in just written communication. Sometimes it may be appropriate if a lot of explanation is necessary. But often just an, asking a question, seeking clarity would be wise for me or anyone else that you hear preaching. You should speak to such a person in love and with respect. As it says in Galatians 2, when we confront another person, whether they're pastor or any other believer, we need to keep a watch on ourselves, lest we're also tempted. We need to make sure we're not sinning like Miriam and Aaron in our confrontation. And if after they explain their handling of the text or doctrine... Uh, their explanation is still not convincing to you. What should you do? Well, you should go to the other elders during the church. And if they too offer an unconvincing explanation, well, then you're, then you're at a crossroads. And you have to discern, is this mishandling of the word of God significant enough that it demonstrates that this pastor or this, these elders care more about teaching what they want than they do rightly handling the word of God, then you probably should find a new church. Because Christ leads his church through the Bible. So this is no small issue. If, a, if the Bible's not rightly being handled and interpreted accurately, then Christ isn't really being followed any longer. So this is a heavy thing. Let's look at the last section, 10 through 16, where Miriam is disciplined by God. As a consequence for speaking against Moses, Miriam is immediately struck with leprosy. And, and Aaron, you see, immediately responds also and acknowledges his error. We've, we've done foolishly and sinned, he says. This is a great um, example of how we should respond when we realize we've been in error. When we realize we've spoken in error, we sinned, right? To make no excuses, no defense, fully own up to what we did that was wrong. As it says in Isaiah 66, but to this one I will look, to him who is humble, who's contrite in heart, I mean stricken in heart, and who trembles at my word. And this is how all of us should respond when we see our sin. And Aaron, I think, is to be commended for asking for mercy. He responds rightly here. But I think it's interesting because it's Aaron 
who was the high priest. It was Aaron's job to intercede on behalf of the people of Israel. That's his role. But notice, because he's the one that's been an heir, he goes to Moses to intercede on his behalf. So that Moses would act as a mediator. Aaron was an imperfect high priest. See, unlike Aaron, no matter what sin we commit, if we're truly repentant, we can always come to God and ask mercy because Christ is our high priest. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 15. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet without sin. He's a perfect high priest. And so let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So it emphasizes that Aaron was imperfect and that we need a perfect high priest, which of course was Christ. And now we can go to him at any time and confess our sins and he will intercede on our behalf before the Father. Aaron's description in verse 12 of, of Miriam's leprosy might strike you as a bit strange and disturbing. But that description is very purposeful. Because Aaron's description actually signifies what Miriam did wrong. He, he, he notes that Miriam appears the way a stillborn baby appears when it comes out of the womb dead. It's a disturbing picture of one who has been cut off from the source of life. When Miriam spoke against Moses, she was cutting herself off from the source of her spiritual life. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. When she spoke against God's spokesman, She was speaking against her source of life. She was poisoning the well, so to speak. And in striking Miriam with leprosy, God's saying that he has spat in her face, disgracing her. Because by speaking against God's appointed authority, she has effectively spat in God's face. That's why there's this association of a father and a daughter, right? A daughter is one who's under the authority of her father. When she speaks against her father, she's spat in his face. And God's saying, well, you spat in my face. Now I spit in your face. You've disgraced me. Now you will be disgraced. And because she struck with leprosy, she's forced to remain outside the camp for at least seven days which is in accordance with the Leveret law. If anybody was unclean, they had to remain outside the camp seven days to make sure that cleanness, uncleanness had been removed. She wouldn't be allowed to return if she was, until she was no longer infected. But she is allowed to return after seven days, which tells us something. She was immediately healed on account of Moses' prayer. God had mercy on her, but there was still a significant punishment. 
And I, this account is remarkably similar to Second Chronicles. If you turn in your Bibles to Second Chronicles chapter 26. I think I noted this in um, the overview of Numbers. Very interesting account of King Uzziah, who was a faithful king. But he was so faithful, he actually grew in pride. And he asserted himself into the role of high priest. Or of a priest, at least. And then the priests withstood King Uzziah, it said, in verse 18. And they said to him, Uzziah, it is not for you to burn incense to Yahweh, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Go out of the sanctuary, for you have done wrong, and you will bring, it will bring you no honor from Yahweh. Then Uzziah was angry. Now he has censer in his hand to burn incense. And when he became angry at the priests, leprosy broke out on his forehead in the presence of the priests in the house of Yahweh by the altar of incense. And Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked at him, and behold, he was leprous in his forehead. And they rushed him out quickly, and he himself hurried to go out because Yahweh had struck him. And King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death. And being a leper lived in a separate house, for he was excluded from the house of Yahweh. Uzziah was permanently excluded from the house of God because of his presumption. Presuming to put himself into a place where he had not been appointed. And because of this arrogance, he was no longer allowed to be near the temple. And so you see even more the mercy that God had upon Miriam in only allowing her to be excluded for seven days. But she still had to pay some consequence. And likewise, as Christians, even though we might be forgiven, that does not mean that we will not face consequences for our sin. We will be disciplined for our sin. And that's why the author of Hebrews 12.5 says that we're not to regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. In other words, don't think of it as a light thing to be disciplined. Don't sin casually. Know that there will be consequences for your sin, even if you're a Christian. Right? Uzziah was struck with permanent leprosy. Moses was prevented from entering the promised land after 40 years of wandering in the desert, even though he was faithful in all of God's house. He struck the rock. No longer, Moses. You're done. You're not entering the promised land. David after his sin with Bathsheba, lost the child that was conceived. Israel was cast into exile in Babylon. Ananias and Sapphira were killed for lying for the Holy Spirit, to the Holy Spirit in Acts 4. And in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul said that some of the Corinthians were ill and even some had died because they did not uh, examine themselves rightly before eating of the Lord's table. In that same passage, 1 Corinthians 11, Paul then says, though, but when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. God's discipline is an act of love. He's doing it to prevent us from falling away. 
And often His discipline is severe. But it's for love. But I think that the, the severest expression of discipline was that which was expressed in Isaiah 53. When Jesus, the sinless servant of Yahweh, received the discipline that we deserved. In Isaiah 53, 4 and 5, it says this. Surely He has borne our griefs. That's the same word that's used for sicknesses, like leprosy. And carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken. Same word that was used to describe Uzziah being struck with leprosy. We esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement, the discipline that brought us peace or shalom. And it's by His wounds that we're healed. See, whereas Aaron, the high priest, merely went to Moses and and, and prayed so that that leprosy would be removed, our high priest didn't just pray for us. He took the leprosy that we deserved upon Himself. He was stricken, smitten, and afflicted for us. And that's how we've got our shalom. Let's pray. Father, we're reminded that we have no reason to boast in anything. And there is no reason that we should desire any sort of admiration, any credit, any condemnation when we consider what we deserve. Lord, we deserve hell. The severest of discipline. And yet, Christ, you took all of that for us. And therefore, you alone are worthy of glory and honor and power and admiration and worship. And so, Father, even as we move forward, I pray that you would increase our awareness of the grace that abounds toward us in Christ, that we would love Him more, treasure Him more, and seek to be more like Him in all that we do. We pray all these things in Christ's name.